is easy does it and for the first time ever i will not be following that up by saying a uh well i'm sure i've screwed this up in the past but uh, a part of the dbn network nope a new chapter has uh, started here today or at whatever point in time you are hearing this as we are now no longer the dbn network we are actually a officially a part of dogs by nature and this is a for some of you, for many of you possibly, it's probably like uh, not not really going to be any difference at all. In fact, it really shouldn't make much of a difference at all in the way that you uh, take in the program one way or another. But it, it's I mean, it's it's significant from a, you know, kind of identification standpoint. We've always been known as uh, the DBN network. And now we are just all under the umbrella of Dogs by Nature, which is the site from which we all kind of originated and, and got to know each other and kind of began this uh, this connection, this uh, this uh, relationship that we have. And so the it's a it's 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 kind of a cool thing. Um, it, it, the distinction is, uh, you know, always in the interest of uh, being candid. And uh, <laughs> we got to hear a little bit from our owner this week, and I talked about that earlier. As it turns out, the two broadcasts this last week, the post game uh, show after the Steelers loss, and then the post Hugh Jackson firing and uh, subsequent press conference between John Dorsey and uh, Jimmy Haslam. That was on uh, Sunday and Monday of this week, respectively. And so, or last week again, depending on when you are listening, or maybe even, you know, further into the future, but you'll get it. You know, I'm confident of that. You'll get it at that point. But we are today you know part of uh the dogs by nature platform and what that means is that it's uh it's it's, it's expansion it's a broader reach it's uh we, we've and how this uh, all came to be you know we and, and kind of you know those two things together is that you know we started this um this this uh, little network the dbn network podcast platform uh, over two years ago the start of the 2016 campaign uh, right on the beginning of the of that season so we've been around for some fun times and it was a you know a a a venture that we kind of began those of us that were part of it from the very beginning and there's not very many but it's a you know evolved over time uh but it was a, a kind of a separate thing. In fact, we were always very specific that the DBN network was not officially affiliated or related to dogsbynature.com, even though we had kind of a symbiotic relationship and, and promoted each other uh, in mutually beneficial terms, and and happily so. You know, it was always, it's always been a positive relationship with uh, with. And of course, I myself have been a part time writer for Dogs by Nature for also the last uh, about a year or two years or so. I forget now when I started doing that. And before then, I was an amateur writer. I did the fan post thing for quite a while and uh, am, am about, I don't know, 50,000 comments deep into the uh, the commentariat, if you will, on the um, – the, so point is, is – uh, I've been we, we've I've been a part of Dogs by Nature in one way or another for uh, a while, uh, anyway. But the DBN network was a separate thing. But uh, recently, 
the folks at uh, the parent company approached us and said, hey, you know, we're doing this for other sites and we uh, we think that uh, – you know, this is like the perfect thing. <laughs> you guys are already doing it. Let's make it. Uh, let's make it happen, baby. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, and so we we worked together and uh, made it made it happen. And so here we are today, uh, officially a part of it. And it's a, it's an exciting thing. I'm, I'm uh, pleased with how it's all kind of eventuated, and we're we're happy about it. It's uh, it, it, we're hoping for is that it allows for broader reach, better quality. Um, you know, more uh, opportunities for things uh, to provide to you, the listening audience, uh, you know, better content on a more consistent quality basis. And uh, coming along with this kind of original uh, formation, the, the podcast um, transition from the DBN network to the Dogs by Nature platform, which will still be available. I mean, that's the thing is that anywhere that you were listening before, you'll be able to listen to now. Although if you were listening exclusively on the SoundCloud uh, platform, like if you were subscribed there and you were listening through that, or if you were on the app, which there was a lot of people on the app, actually, uh, you'll have to, it won't be part of, um, that that won't be part of where the, that's not, that's not where the shows are going now. It's going to the Dogs by Nature platform, which is available uh, you know, anywhere, anywhere that you are listening to podcasts, it's, you know, it's on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever, wherever you go, just do, just put in dogs by nature and you'll, you'll get it. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, that, that's another thing, you know, we, one of the things we had kind of complaints about is, uh, the, uh, you know, the kind of the lack of availability in some of those venues. So that's certainly been not just, yeah, it's it's been exacerbated. So, and and of course, the same kind of connection and relationship that we always had continues. So it's it's all good. Um, but in the in the the spirit of that, there is you know, as I say, larger reach now and expanded platform. So there are probably some folks that haven't heard this program before and haven't heard the other ones. I say there are folks that are coming with me uh, with in this venture because I've been you know around from the very beginning. Uh, but you know, and uh, the others have to very degree has been around for a long period of time but Thelonious 7 with straight no chaser is always you know he's, he's just one of my favorite people anyway and he is uh just awesome so they had probably the longest i think tenured of those that are around uh my man gin and tonic has the the long table and where he uh talks with a variety of folks and and has his you know New York Browns fan perspective but he's you know they've been around for a while now and enjoy that program our our guys uh Josh Finney and John Colosimo if you haven't heard of him he's a sharp guy uh, as as is Josh you may have you may know Josh cuz he's been around he's been a writer on Dogs by Nature for a long time and the two of them together uh, have a great program that this believe land is our land which was kind of a fan based title uh and they actually have a new program if you have it. If you're listening to this, you probably can hear theirs, uh, their latest one uh, as well. One of the one of the first ones to join the new Dogs by Nature uh, platform. And then, of course, I can't leave out uh, our men, Big Town Brown and Darth Batman. Again, these are guys that you'll, you'll know very well if you ever hang around Dogs by Nature anyway. And they have their program, Absolute 10 and 6. And they, of course, are all about... Uh, 
everything everything good with the brown and orange with Brian Hoyer sprinkled in for no reason in particular. And so the uh, and and you know we've had our and and there's a variety of other folks that have been contributors that aren't necessarily in the official. Uh, way that they that you know the programs that I just listed that are you know the official part of now the dogs by nature uh, podcast it's it's it is a podcast network but it's not like the it's not like we had the DBN network it's just it's just dog by nature where wherever wherever you get podcasts just dogs by nature and you'll be able to get um, the stuff that we do and to varying degrees you know I'll, I'll probably be a little bit more uh, you know chatty y'all know me I'll, I'll probably have more programs than uh, than the others because I'm plan on doing it uh, at least twice a week now whereas I was doing it for the most part over the last uh, two years predominantly after every game never missed a game and then during the off season a couple of times uh typically on sunday but now when i'm you know now that we're now that we're committed right now that we're stepping up into a a better situation with you know good partners and so on the uh, my schedule will go up to you know one on sunday one on thursday so kind of one you know immediately following the uh, the uh, aftermath of whatever happens which hopefully will be more good than bad <laughs> than we've seen so you know so far this year but then on uh, Thursday, kind of previewing what's coming up in the weekend and, uh, you know, all that that happened between the Sunday and the Thursday, which, you know, in most weeks, or maybe for most teams, there's probably not a whole lot to report. Of course, this week for us, it's, uh, <laughs> there's, you know, where there, 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 was, there was plenty that happened. This was, of course, the, the Hugh Jackson... Uh, 86ing week he was he was summarily 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 dispatched uh, on Monday Greg Williams the defensive coordinator took over and is running the defense Freddie Kitchens becomes the offensive coordinator and I'll get into all that a little bit later on but you know again wanted to as we are welcoming in the new the new folks that are going to be reached and marketed to and and uh, found this you know way that's all you know, the whole point is that we were just we're expanding so there's folks that haven't heard us before and for y'all just to get an idea of uh where i'm at i'm a you know cleveland guy or was a cleveland guy northeastern ohio guy spent originally from like if you know where chardon is lived like all around that area and worked a lot in chardon directly and spent a lot of time out in the rural parts uh, for a lot of my growing up time and was a season ticket holder at old municipal stadium with my dad for all of 1993, 1994, and most of 1995, I'll be honest, I couldn't make, I, I couldn't go to the last, to, or to a couple of the games that uh, happened at Old Municipal. Like, I, I don't think I went to the Packers game or the Steeler game because we had already given up at that point. That was when the, the Browns moved. And that was kind of my, you know, I became a Browns fan in 1991 when my family moved back to Ohio. We had lived, we, I was born in, uh, you know, NEO, and then we moved down to Florida, we, you know, Tampa area when I was a young kid and then we moved back to Ohio when I was kind of beginning my junior high days and my uh, you know when I was living in Florida when you're a, when you're a young kid you know elementary school kid in the 80s in Florida you know professional wrestling was really all the the rage and so that's what I was into when I was a young young kid not really a whole lot of, of football knowledge <clears throat> or interest quite honestly I was you know, cognizant of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I would try to watch a game, you know, every now and then, but I just couldn't. I just couldn't get into it. They just, just, I just, just couldn't get into it. 
for any number of reasons. Buccaneers were terrible back in those days, which but you know what was funny is that that was when Vinny Testaverde was the quarterback and they actually had a sign on Dale Mabry, which is the uh you know, billboard, which is the road that the stadium on, say, hey, Vinny, can you read this? Funny stuff. And he, uh, so, but I mean, I, I wasn't into football. I moved back up to Ohio, and that was kind of when, first of all, you know, professional wrestling was, in, in the first place, it wasn't as prevalent, but then also you get older, you know, it just wasn't really into, it, 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 for me anyway, it just wasn't something I was into anymore. But then the, the, a large part of that is because my, my interest, uh, the summer before I had watched a little bit of the World League, like actually the year before that was when I had watched my first game, the Super Bowl, actually, between the Giants and the Bills in 1991, Super Bowl 25, because it was played in Tampa, where we were living, uh, in the area, and Whitney Houston had that you know incredible national anthem, which was tremendous. And then, they, I mean, for my first game, and the only thing I knew was that the Bills were supposed to win big because they had just destroyed the Raiders a couple of weeks before, and I was just kind of becoming you know cognizant of what was going on and. Uh, it, I expected it to go that way just because of what I heard. And the game ended up being a really super exciting game. There was aspects to the game of football that I was seeing for the first time. And, of course, that one ended with Scott Norwood hooking the uh, the kick wide right. And from that point forward, I was basically in love with the game of football. And the and, But, of course, it's... Uh, you know that's the Super Bowl. There's not really a whole lot of you got the in those days. You got the Pro Bowl afterwards, which isn't really uh, worth watching any at any point. Uh, but then that that year there was also this thing called the World League of American Football, and there were uh, several teams. There was a team called the New York New Jersey Knights. There was the Orlando Thunder. There was also uh, a bunch of teams like the London Monarchs won it all that year. Uh, and there were the Barcelona Dragons, the Rhine Fire. Some of these survived, like they ended up becoming part of NFL Europe. And uh, there's even more that that uh, the Frankfurt Galaxy, and and probably even more the, a couple more that I'm not remembering, but. While that was, by today's standards, and probably even by the standards of that day, not terribly entertaining football to watch, for me, it was, and it, were, it was more or less the same, you know, rules as NFL football. That was the whole point. They were trying to introduce uh, NFL-style football to uh, the Brits and, oh, and oh, all of Europe. And so the uh, the game itself was, it was you know, the rules for the most part were NFL rules so for me it was like a good way to learn kind of what the game was all about kind of learn what the uh, you know the, the the specs of the rules and, and just the idiosyncrasies of and I really started to enjoy it and then so the following year it just so happens right around school time I moved back to Ohio which of course is the same point in time that the season is starting and everybody that now are my are becoming my friends they're all Browns fans every one of them you know and so that became something I was like, I had already gotten into football. My dad had been a Browns fan. He had tried to watch the Browns when we were in, in Florida. But this is, you know, the 80s. There wasn't Sunday ticket or anything like that. And so it would be few and far between. Um, although I, I would rem- I remember him watching like the I, what I would, you know, later on, I would appreciate the, the drive, the fumble and everything else. Um, I just wasn't all that interested. But he was, you know, he was. So I knew that he was, you know, that he loved the Browns. And that, of course, made a uh, a, a, a big uh, point in my you know, wanting to follow them, get into them. And it took all of one game. I was watching Bernie Kosar, the quarterback, hit a uh, long touchdown pass, 60 yards, to Michael Jackson, who wore number one. And the Browns uh, beat the hell out of the Patriots. 
And that was that was the first like Browns game that I watched and we won and that was like yeah that was my I was hooked from that point forward. And so the following year saw my first game at the stadium. It was a Monday night game against the Dolphins where uh, Bernie got a um he actually got a broken ankle in the second quarter. John Offerdahl, the middle linebacker of the Dolphins, got a sack. He was beat. The, Bernie was beat the hell up the week before in Indianapolis. The Colts had the Colts won two games the year before, sacked Bernie eleven times uh, in opening day, and the Browns lost that game fourteen to three. The following week, the second week, they're playing on Monday night against the Dolphins. That was the game I was at with my dad and my brother, and the Dolphins get out to this big league. Uh, Bernie breaks his ankle, but stays in the game. And then in the fourth quarter, he uncorks the 60-yard pass to uh, Michael Jackson again, and that kind of lit the fuse. They got the offense going. They finish off the drive with a touchdown, makes it 20-10. to Then Mark Higgs, the uh, Dolphins' running back, fumbles on the next drive for the Dolphins. It's picked up by David Brandon, who was a linebacker for us. He scampers in from like 25 yards or whatever it was and scores a touchdown. Now all of a sudden it's 20-10. Seventeen and the place is going nuts. I had never experienced anything like this. I had been to uh, lots of like professional wrestling matches, so I'd been around like you know like a competitive thing in a large crowd, but nothing compared. I had never experienced anything like Cleveland Stadium erupting in that type of setup, and I was you know full on maniac, uh, you know falling in love with this team, you know more and more by the minute you know, part of my development. And uh, then we stop the Dolphins again. We get the ball back. Bernie then proceeds to uh, drive the team down and, you know, completing passes, converting third downs, finally gets it down to the goal line where he can throws a touchdown pass to Mark Bavaro, who catches the ball, flips over upside down, and lands on his head, bounces off his head, and into the end zone. I mean, it, seriously, I mean, he lands full, and he was a big dude, was a huge guy, actually. Bavaro was a, a great player. And he scores the touchdown, and so we go ahead 23-20, to 20, missed the extra point. <laughs> and this was back, and it was Matt Stover, missed the extra point. So we're down 23-20 to 20 at that point, but it doesn't matter because the Dolphins take the ball. There's a minute 10 left in the game. Dan Marino goes right down the field and proceeds to get a first and goal at the one. Uh, Mark Higgs punches it in from one yard out with 10 seconds left, and we lose the game 27-23 to 23 in my first ever live game at the old stadium. And, you know, it was, it was the perfect you know, first game to to go at and, you know, have that sort of, you know, Monday night and, and you know, walk away for, with the, the crushing disappointment. It would, it would be a good forerunner to really this entire experience that has uh, unfolded now 27 years uh, later. So, you know, th- that later on that year, my dad and I went to, uh, you know, a few more games. We saw uh, the game against the uh, Green Bay Packers, which was Brett Favre's fourth start of the season, uh, which uh, that season was his first year starting. It was the first. It was the fourth start of his career, and I think it was the fourth or fifth. I mean, it was it was shortly into his NFL career, and the Browns' defense throttled him that day. And we went to a few more games, and one of the games that we went to was later on in the year where we're playing the Houston Oilers. It was the final game of the regular season, and saw Clay Matthews break uh, Jerry Shirk's all-time sack record, and that was an incredible experience because the you know Jerry Shirk was a fan favorite. Clay Matthews had played for the Browns for I think 14 years at that point, and uh, the place was just going nuts. I mean, it was <laughs> he comes around the corner, he sacks Cody Carlson, who was Warren Moon's backup playing the game in place of Moon, who was injured. 
He comes around the corner. He sacks Carlson. The place is going. I mean, it's going berserk. And of course, as again, you know, these these are all the forerunner of my. And, and by the way, we're in playoff contention. If we win that game, we actually have a shot of getting in the postseason. I think we were. I think we were like seven and seven at that point. And. Uh, but instead, what happens is, uh, they, the, and then very next play, Carlson throws a screen pass to Lorenzo White into the teeth of a blitz. It goes for 64 yards, and that sets up Houston. They score on a touchdown pass to Ernest Givens a few plays later, and we lose. And so, and we lost the final week. Now, actually, what ended up happening though is two weeks later is when Houston played up in Buffalo and had the uh, the. the greatest comeback of all time that was with Frank Reich and uh, the Bills uh, down 35 to 3 and coming back and winning that game in overtime 41 to 38 so that was you know after seeing the Oilers do that to us two weeks later it was pretty sweet watching that comeback and I always liked the Bills anyway when I was because that was kind of the thing like you'd watch the Browns in the regular season by the time you got to the postseason they were out of it and so the Bills were kind of the team that I would watch in the postseason because you had somebody to root for particularly since they played the Steelers uh, a couple of times I think at least once. But at any rate, uh, the following year, 1993, that's when my dad and I got season tickets. And opening day in 1993 was one of the greatest things ever. We were playing the Bengals. And I remember this game like it was, you know, it, it just was one of the greatest. I mean, that whole time, like that, particularly because I was spending time with my dad and we uh you know we we'd get there early we'd watch you know all the this the ceremonies before the game and uh that one in particular they had the blue angels there before the game and which were awesome if you've never experienced that it's one of the greatest things ever and they had them flying before the game now i don't know how they coordinated this or if it was just a, a happenstance but it was seriously one of the most impressive things i ever experienced in the end of the third quarter going into the fourth quarter there's a a situation where the Bengals quarterback David Klingler gets a pass interference penalty called on him. Wait, not called on him. He draws a pass interference penalty by uh, throwing a pass out. And so uh, that leads to a first and goal at the one. The first and second down part of that series, the Bengals don't get anywhere, and they uh, – they flip it, then moves on to the fourth quarter. They run on the first two plays, get nowhere. It's now third and goal from the one, starting the fourth quarter. They uh, incomplete pass on third down, sets up fourth down and one. They decide to go for it, and incomplete pass on fourth down, and it was a goal line stand. The place, and it was a sold out. You know, it was a sold out game, first game of the year. And the place is going. You know, it's going crazy because we're up. We're up by six, I think, at that point. And right at the moment that the crowd was at, like, the zenith of its, you know, excitement and exuberance, the Blue Angels come by and they skim the top of the stadium again. Like, right at that moment. It was, it. I mean, it's, 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 it's chill-inducing thinking about it right now. It was so incredible, that experience. Uh, so then, and we won that game. And then the following week, we beat the 49ers, and this is when they were the 49ers. Steve Young was at the helm and had Jerry Rice and Ricky Waters. I mean, that was a team that uh, that year, uh, no, the following year, won the Super Bowl. And they were pretty good that year in 1993. They were pretty good that whole time for the 80s and 90s. And we beat that team with a great defensive effort and really kind of Bernie's uh, last, you know, kind of time as the starter and, you know, with, with the Browns uh, the following week at the stadium. And that was, you know, that, that was such a, you know, that was a great time. Later on that year, 1993, um, 
but wait, it was when Eric Metcalf had the two punt return for touchdowns. And that's one, I mean, I saw a clip of it today. Uh, somebody was honoring Eric Metcalf and his versatility with the Browns and as an NFL player. And that, that game was as far as, uh, just that moment. Cause we're, cause we were tied for the division lead at that point. It's mid season and we we're tied for the division lead. And we won that game, uh, 28 to 23 Metcalf's second punt return for a touchdown happening inside of two minutes on a, another sequence that I could explain for you <laughs> chapter and verse, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but that, that, that was a great moment. It really felt like, man, this team is going to go somewhere this year. Uh, the following week is when uh, the Broncos came to town. They just absolutely, you know, m- wiped the floor with us. There's a moment in that game though. And I always love recounting this where, uh, the there's like a TV timeout or something, and all of a sudden out of nowhere the there's a chant that starts Elway sucks Elway sucks Elway and I'm here to tell you that within 30 seconds it was the entire stadium and I mean it was clear as a bell. Sometimes you and I listen to it on the uh, broadcast. Because uh, I record, I, 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 in those days, we had the technology of setting the timer on your VCR, so that way you could record the broadcast and go back. You know, we had it, we had it all, we had it set up back in the '90s. So that's what I did, and I would, I listened to it, and you could hear it clear as day. Elway sucks. Elway sucks. And I mean, he, he, this was during a TV timeout and a drive that he was playing, and he proceeded to come back on the field after that, goes right down the field, and shreds our defense because we were no match for him that day. The Broncos stomp us out. And Bernie Kosar, I actually left the game before this happened. We, you know, my dad and I are leaving because it's like they're getting, they're getting, you know, they're getting beat down. They're like, might as well get a jump on the traffic. So we're listening on the radio, walking back through the Muni lot. Nev Chandler calling a uh, Bernie Kosar touchdown to Michael Jackson on a play that he apparently wrote up, in, you know, drew up in the dirt. And it's like, all right, well, you know. And by that point, you know, he had already lost the starting job. The only reason he was playing is because Vinny Testaverde, the starter, the starting quarterback, had gotten injured. It's funny how Vinny gets back into the conversation. Well, the next day, uh, Belichick cuts Bill Belichick. Oh, yeah, by the way, if you didn't realize this, Bill Belichick was our coach. <laughs> and uh, Belichick cuts Bernie Kosar. And that was a big, huge, controversial moment. Um, people were really... I was angry about it. I loved Bernie. I actually had a Bernie Kosar Dallas jersey in protest because uh, Bernie went to Dallas, ends up winning a Super Bowl ring with the Cowboys that year that we cut him as the backup quarterback and did contribute to uh, the Cowboys winning you know, winning that ring as almost like karmic justice, you know, kind of sticking it to the Browns. Even back in those days, that, that type of thing would happen. But in retrospect, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. But I won't... I won't go into uh, all of that, nor will uh, I really get um, too much into the uh, the what 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 happened after. <laughs> you know the the we went to the playoffs uh, the next year in 1994, and that was a great time. Uh, one of the one of the really the most jubilant times that I can recall. And really, that year had some just fantastic games at home. There was one game against the Seahawks. I think we won it like 36 to six. There was uh, there was a lot of great games that year. That was such a fun time. 
and we won the playoff game against the Patriots. And then the next week, it uh, didn't go well in Pittsburgh. But then what came after that is the part where uh, we've we've all been through it before, and maybe in a future episode I'll get into it in full. But uh, I don't want you know we don't need to re- we don't need to relive all of that pain. I just really kind of want to let you know where the origins of my kind of Browns fandom come from. And in many ways, it's that moment at the end, you know, after we beat the Patriots and we're going on to take on the Steelers, and we go and end that game. You know, it, it didn't it it went wrong really quickly. And after that game, you're thinking, man, this team is good though. We're going to get back there next year. And of course, next year. It, you know, in a very real sense, next year never happened, you know, because 1995, you know, the move happens and everything else. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, 1999, it's, it's ever since then, it's kind of like we need to get back to that, you know, next year. And I kind of feel like uh, this is as close to that as, uh, as we've gotten. And, uh, and I'm going to get more into that. But I think first I want to step away because uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, a, a, a good segue out, you know, kind of giving you a little bit of background on uh, where, I, where I come from and um, when we return, get into uh, where, uh, I, you know, I kind of think the, the team has progressed to up to this point, and then later on, uh, what I think is going to happen this Sunday and for the rest of the season. My name is Easy Weave. This is Easy Does It on Dogs by Nature. Good to say that. We'll be back in a moment. This Believe Land is our land with Josh Finney and John Colosimo. When literally we can't figure out a way to use the guys that are on the squad, it's just, it's maddening every week. And I think that at the end of the day, it's part of the reason that I think that Haley signed his death warrant. It was a question of stubbornness and how they choose to operate an unwillingness to change regardless of whose scheme and idea that is. I think that Dorsey probably looked at it and said, you know, if I can't pull out which one of you is at fault for this, then you can both go. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, uh, after a little bit of time to reflect on that, because I was very surprised, it actually was a nice departure from what we've seen, geez, countless freaking times. How many times have we seen these power struggles play out? It was nice if, if this is what they were trying to do, is that nobody wins you're both gone and nobody wins the power struggle and different is good if you're going to look at it from that angle i think this was a departure from what we see listen to this believe land is our land only on dogs by nature okay so in the previous segment we're talking about the kind of the way that 1995 ended all the hope that had uh, sprung up in 1994. For me, anyway, after the winning the playoff game and uh, having a really good solid team built up. You know, the, the aughts, the period of time, 1999, up until really now. And maybe you can make the cutoff point after the end of the 2015 season when this new iteration of, of uh, the Browns really started. It You know, there was all sorts of reasons why the team you know, was poor. I think that actually they were on kind of a, a good trajectory, even despite a bad, you know, opening series of decisions and circumstances that they were in. Uh, but, you know, Tim Couch was, you know, they had it going, but Al Lerner passed away and that created a situation that really just um, a, a, a sequence of events that really derailed that whole thing and put the Browns on a course where, they kind of floundered for several seasons, and that was it was it was unfortunate to watch. Even though we did have a fun year in uh, 2007, going 10 and six, but then the following year, going four and 12, wasn't acceptable. So of course we uh, go in a new direction, and several new directions after that. We then 
uh, have the momentous occasion of Jimmy Haslam purchasing the team in 2012. And from there, (laughs) it went from, uh, it it went from, you know, I don't like to be too cliche about things, but it's from the frying pan into the fire is an appropriate uh, way to describe that situation, where... As far as the, we were, we were fairly dysfunctional. But for whatever reason, his hand touching the things that would occur next were even more dysfunctional, and fairly spectacularly so in in some cases. To the extent that uh, we have since that time now in 2012, Hugh Jackson, or I should say Greg Williams, who's now the interim active head coach, probably probably shouldn't call him the interim head coach until. Uh, he gets fired because he might actually just be the coach. You know, who knows? Maybe he does well, and uh, and they keep him around. I, th- I don't think that that's outside of the realm of a uh, possibility. But Greg Williams represents now the fifth head coach that uh, that that uh, Jimmy Haslam has employed since he took over the team in 2012. Now he inherited Pat Shermer, who's now the coach of the Giants. Fired him after the first season. Okay, fine. He uh, he's going to fire the new guy or the, his. He's going to fire the existing guy no matter what. Can expect that. Uh, not to say that Shermer was great or anything, but actually the defense was the best under the Shermer, Dick Geron model. That was the best that defenses looked in this entire new era. Then we have we bring in Rod Chudzinski, who I thought was I thought I, I thought had the makings of a very good coach. I thought he actually did very well his first year, despite having Brandon Whedon. Uh, as his pre- well, no, Brian Hoyer was the savior that year, and he had to rely on Brandon Whedon and uh, and Jason Campbell for a lot of his quarterbacking. The guy went four and twelve. If nothing else, that should speak to just how terrible Hugh Jackson has been. But it really, I think, also speaks to how well and and plus there were games that we should have won that we you know against the Patriots that year. That was the Josh Gordon breakout year that happened under. That was also the only really solid year from Jordan Cameron, and that happened under Rod Chudzinski. Well, for a variety of uh, reasons, you know, Chud was let go after one year, as was the combination of um, Lombardi and Banner. And so that then brought in, that ushered in the tenure of Ray Farmer and Mike Pettin, who got two years. And at this point, they then tried to cobble together with free agents and, you know, draft picks that bombed out mostly spectacularly, although some of those picks do actually um, remain to this day. But the uh, the ultimate result was a roster of misfits by 2015 that had been you know guys that for the for, for example on our defensive line although this sort of thing is less important today as it was back then but you had a bunch of guys that were really kind of brought in to play uh, in a in a three four after we had done a quick switch from a three four to a four three and then back to a three four a lot of these guys were brought in to play a four three and now we're playing in a three four scheme they were just out of all all out of position but yet they were they were there because they were guys that had been acquired and so they were part of the uh this you know what what the existing coach was doing it was at at that point and even with that you had a a team that was you know that had you know plenty of veterans uh but that weren't very good and for the most part were pretty expensive and while we had picked up some good draft capital, the decision was made to totally, and I mean completely, bottom out at the end of the 2015 season. And so a couple of things happened. First of all, we we fired Ray Farmer and Mike Pettin. And then we 
brought in. By the way, the combo of uh, Petten and Farmer, uh, what, 10 and 26? 10 and 25? What was their, their record over? Uh, I think that was a record over two years. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, because I would have played, played eight. So, what, 10 and 34? Uh, 10, and th- 10 and 22? Yeah, because 32 games. That's what it was over two years. So, how much better was that combo? But then, you know, again, okay, people talk about talent. So, what we did is we just completely, anybody that was that was even close, uh, basically anybody that was that that was a veteran that could be re-signed wasn't at the end of the 2015 season. So anybody that had a contract up, and there were guys, you know, Kelvin, um, I'm sorry, Travis Benjamin, not Kelvin, uh, Trey, um, Taylor Gabriel, of course Mitchell Schwartz, and uh, Alex Mack. Although Alex Mack was never going to ever, ever come back. I don't care. Nobody can ever convince me Alex Mack was ever, under any circumstances, going to sign with us at the end of the 2015 season. <clears throat> I'm also pretty convinced the same thing about Mitchell Schwartz, even though the story has always been that, of course, we he went back to uh, get the deal that Sashi Brown, the new uh, uh, executive vice president of football operations, hired... A, pretty close to the same time, or elevated to that position pretty close to the same time that Paul De Podesta of uh, Moneyball fame was um, brought in to be the chief strategy officer, a position he still holds to this day in somewhat uh, mysterious form. But they, uh, the the Mitchell Schwartz uh, situation, I think, was always one where he was trying to use us to drive up his value. He's been great with uh, Kansas City, who, of course, we play this week, depending on when you're hearing this. But he is um, uh, an example of kind of the the way that they decided they were going to move forward with this. They were letting everybody go. And I think that the, the Schwartz example in particular has there, there's a lot of angles to it that I'm, I'm just not going to get into right now but as far as it went what it re- what it led to was you let all these guys go that led to directly quite a few comp- uh, compensatory picks for the following draft season for the following draft cycle and that year they also in addition to um that you know that move that they made cutting a lot of salary and they did so in other ways too uh traded andy lee for a, a fourth round pick and there was also, I think, a seventh-round pick that was in there. We also go into that draft, and we had the second pick overall. And instead of taking whichever quarterback would have been left from either Jared Goff or Carson Wentz, which is what I wanted to do, by the way, but I, you know, I instead what we did was we turned that pick into multiple, multiple first and second round and third and, and multiple, multiple draft picks, uh, feeding off into the future into a strategy that. I I very much came to uh, admire and I, I thought was quite brilliant and would have liked to have seen um, continue on longer than it ultimately did. But because of that, we ended up adding a lot of young players in uh, the 2016 and 2017 draft cycle. In 2017, with a lot of those compensatory picks, we really didn't have a whole lot of guys hitting free agency, so we spent more on free agency going into the 2016 season, but unfortunately it didn't uh, help us to improve the record at all. Although, uh, in my humble, if estimable, opinion, I think a lot of that has to do with the guy that was on the sidelines uh, during that entire time. Be that as it may, the approach... Really allowed for um, a couple of things to happen. Bottoming out like that, it put 
the and, and by removing the veteran presence, you bring in all of these young guys. Well, they're the ones that are going to play because the, there are no veterans around to beat them in the experience. Now, what that means though is you have a lot of guys that made a lot of mistakes those first two years, and I'm not you know totally beating on Hugh Jackson. Certainly, he had a lot of young, uh, and that's why a lot of people gave him you know clearly the benefit of the doubt after going one and fifteen in uh, 2016. But then after going oh in 16 in 2017, you know there was still even some grace extended. And I think people were even would even would have even been uh, you know gracious towards him if some of these games this year had gone our way, but that didn't. You know the Raiders beat us and they just got destroyed by the 49ers who you know aren't that good. So you know I mean that it, it does speak to something, but at, at any rate, the the strategy that we had employed there of totally tearing the thing down and kind of forcing the young guys to all play, improve, get better. You know, kind of force feeding them reps in that way. While, of course, it, it what it, what it means is that, and in, in the process, throwing a lot of different options at the quarterback position, like the uh, you know, we draft Cody Kessler in the third round, a a a relatively large uh, investment. You know, third round pick is is uh, nothing to sneeze at, and, but and if the guy works out. Then you know it's 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 an absolute bargain. If he doesn't work out, eh, you know, not a whole lot lost there. It's kind of the same thing with uh, Robert Griffin. You know, we bring him in; he was the starter ultimately, and the idea was, you know, he had a bad couple of years of falling out with uh, Washington, but he had a tremendous rookie year. You figure this is one of the highest-rated guys coming out of uh, you know college. You know, Hugh Jackson, the ground shook beneath, beneath my feet, and so forth. It may have worked out. It was a relative. In fact, in that case, it was a tiny investment for a potentially massive um, turn. You know, uh, payoff. And the thing of it is, is that if it doesn't work out, then it means that you. It not working out means that you lose games. If it does work out, then hey, guess what? You have solved the quarterback position, and now you can move on to other things. And and you did it by the way on the cheap, which means you can utilize your big assets and resources into sharpening those other positions. Obviously, the quarterback being the most important one. And so what we did is we we took reasonable shots while deferring our big shot. The big shot could have been taken. I mean, look, it could have been taken that first year. We could have stood pat and taken either Goff or Wentz, and I would have been fine with doing that. The big shot could have been taken the following year in 2016. And look at I if, if if you don't know me, I was somebody that was very um unabashed in my uh love adoration appreciation for and very high willingness to draft at number 1 overall one Patrick Mahomey. It didn't uh go down that way. I was also, you know, uh, very much on the Miles Garrett bandwagon. I was basically I was good with whatever Sashi decided he wanted to do. And this is where a lot of the, you know, kind of the the trusting in the process and believing in what was going on uh, came into play. With number one overall, with um, question marks at everybody at the quarterback position, but though, again, I would have, in fact, I would have even been okay with Trubisky. And I think that that will end up being, and and, and although there there was, I preferred Mahomes slightly over Trubs. In retrospect, yeah, I probably should have preferred him much more over him. But either way, uh, Mahomes was my number one um uh over you know between the two and 
if uh, if we would have gone that direction, I would have been fine with it because it means that the entire team was behind the decision and they were ready to move forward with the guy. And so if there's – to me, that was the whole thing. You needed to have harmony. You need to have everybody on the same page. You need to have everybody singing the same song and coming at it from you know kind of the same position uh, if you're going to have a chance. And so with um, – with that in mind, when we select Garrett number one, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe we can get, uh, you know, either Trubs with a trade up, you know, or, or wait and see if one of them falls to 12. Didn't happen that way. Mahomes gets snatched up by Kansas City, who had a sharp GM that, uh, you know, made the move of their of their life. <laughs> you know, that, that trade was the trade of Kansas City's, you know, destiny. And so we're sitting there at 12. We could have taken Deshaun Watson. And instead, we defer the decision one more time, and I'm convinced it's because uh, Brown and everybody else in the scouting department knew that what was going to be on the board in uh, 2018 was significantly of higher stature than what was available in 2017, particularly after Mahomes was gone and you're looking, you're staring at Deshaun Watson. Uh, and so, at that point. We trade out again. We get more um, assets. One of them turned into the fourth pick overall this year. Now, then you've got what ended up, and, and then we take a another a reasonably high shot. What ultimately turned into a pretty good investment in number fifty-two overall, drafting Deshaun Kaiser, and it's the same thing. And we had also, by the way, earlier in the process, completely you know stole a second-round pick from the Texans yet again. And uh, got Brock Osweiler out of the deal, who has not, you know, he's nothing special, but he was a, he was another guy that you take, and in fact, in that case, not only was a low risk, I mean, we actually got, we, we turned that all, that was all profit, uh, that whole Osweiler thing. All we had to do was eat his salary for one year, which we did, and we're going to get that back uh, this year. But with... Um, with with that with those moves and then you draft Kaiser second over you again it was either these guys somebody's going to work out or they're going to be so bad that we're going to be in a position to to correct the problem next year vis-a-vis the draft actually this year they could have done it if they would you know if they, they actually could have done it through free agency there was quite a few guys Kirk Cousins being the headliner of course probably the only one that's really uh, in the conversation looking at the way that it's all turned out unless you think Case Keenum is uh, one of those guys but that could have been the answer at quarterback for us but that was the thing I think that the what we were doing was we we get guy and then last year was another one of those years where young guys coming in getting all the reps making mistakes uh, and we end up losing, in this case, every game, although I think a lot of that had to do with the coaching and not just the talent, even allowing for you know the coaching to have had uh, some challenges because of the talent that was on the squad. Still, I, uh, I put more of it on the coaching than the talent, but nevertheless, it was all good because it led to us having the number one pick in the draft, and Kaiser, you know, definitely proved that he wasn't going to be the guy for us, at least right now. But in the process, now you have this guy, Kaiser, 22 years old, toolsy, you know, big and strong, plenty b- enough arm, and has a year of starting experience under the belt. So you take that guy and you turn him into a uh, trade for Demarius Randall who ends up becoming a tremendous asset in the secondary, which was the biggest need that we had on the defensive side of the ball after last year. And so that ended up being an investment that worked out pretty well for us. 
Um, and, and that was kind of the way, but the, the whole point about how we were doing things compared to where we're doing them now is that with, with kind of what I would call, you know, sashi ball, the way that we were doing it before, you constantly defer and you also, you select a lot. Like in 2016, we, we drafted three guys in the first round, but we also positioned ourselves to have at least two first rounders coming into the, I'm sorry. In 2016, we drafted one guy in the first round, and then we drafted a guy with the 32nd pick overall, which would normally be a first rounder, but because of uh, uh, Helmet Gate, the Patsies didn't draft that year, so we had the first pick in the second round, which would normally be a first rounder, and that's the pick that we used on Emmanuel Agba. The following year, in 2017, we used p- three picks in the first round, and still positioned ourselves to have. Uh, the first, you know, two picks in the first round in 2018, and I think that what you do in that circumstance, we we trade that pick to the Texans. So you're trading it to a team that's likely to start a rookie quarterback at some point in the year. And if you play the law of averages as well as the, as Watson appeared to look his rookie year, uh, the the average played out that if you end up starting a rookie for most of your year, you're going to have a bad year. Watson got hurt. Okay, fine. That's all part of the of the gamble, right? Um, and it worked out for us. We end up with the fourth pick overall. And I think that if um, – and so, in the like I say, in the process of having a lot of high value – because we had – I think in 2016 we, or 2017 we had something like five players drafted in the top 65, and we had like six players originally that we could have drafted in 2018 in that same – and that's, that's premium. I mean, Larry Ogunjobi was the 65th player overall uh, that year. So – it's that was kind of the strategy and say i think that this year so when you know sashi ends up getting fired so we'll never know but for example we probably still continue to draft a quarterback with the first overall pick and i still think that would have been baker mayfield quite honestly had um had Sashi still been around, but with the fourth pick overall, I think we probably would have traded that down and got massive, massive um, assets and probably end up drafting two or three first-rounders in 2018 and have two or three additional first-rounders in 2019. Now, maybe... You know, from and, and I don't. At this, by the way, I'm not telling you that you're wrong if you think this, but maybe you think that Denzel Ward is worth more than all of those additional picks. That's fine. I'm not even going to disagree with that, and I'm very happy with Denzel Ward. Um, I just really liked the concept of constantly flushing your roster with high premium prospects even if you don't hit on all of them even if you only hit on half of them what does that mean to be adding a quality first rounder every year to your roster that was kind of the whole point of this you know sashy ball money lytics uh model that we had going on or at least the way that i you know envisioned it and you combine with that the you know i was talking earlier about kind of the mishmash of uh, players that we had following the 2015 campaign, it was. I mean, it, it's it's it had been like this for a long time. After we fired Romeo Cornell at the end of 2008, beginning in 2009 with Eric Mangini, we went through a period where we were replacing our coaching staff every other year. And in the case of Chudzinski, it was one year. You know, after one year. So what ends up happening is. You you know when you first of all when you bring in a new because typically it's it's accompanied also by uh, a new front office so you bring in the new front office guy and the new coaching staff and they typically 
do not, in fact, in almost every case, they do not use their scouts because the scouts that have been on the team have been scouting. You, you can't start scouting for the draft, you know, 60 or, or what, 90 days prior to the draft happening. And that's generally when these guys get put in place, the coaches and the front office staff. So what you have to do is you have to use the scouts that are currently on the team, but that belong to the previous regime. Well, what that means is that half of the drafts that we have gone through have been with scouts that weren't part of the team that was doing the draftings um, team. So that's that's already right there. That's that's a huge hamstrung problem that we have just through this this roster churn that we go through. But then you also got the the dynamic of you draft a guy to do something because he fits a scheme that your coaches like and that you want to do. But then you fire that guy, and so the new guy comes in, and look, the reason that he was brought in is because you didn't like what the other guy was doing before, which means you don't like the players that he brought in, so you automatically don't have that same investment in those players, because why would you? And so those players end up becoming you know, less important. Their development gets um, – the, the roles they have change, and they end up underperforming, washing out, or what have you. And it ends up just becoming a, a – whereas – for other teams, and every other year, by the way, we are changing schemes because we're bringing in new coordinators offensively and defensively. I think that this last two years may be the first time on defense that we've had the same scheme in two years, maybe since Dick Duran, maybe Jim O'Neill. Offensively, it seems like we're changing schemes every year, and that doesn't help with the development of young players. And it doesn't help with players that, you know, those guys that we let go, that same class of guys that I was talking about earlier, you know, Travis Benjamin and Schwartz and uh, Gabriel and Tayshawn Gibson and all those guys that were part of the the first like expungement that that uh, Brown did that uh, you know, just releasing all of those guys that were coming up on contract renewals those guys had played for three head coaches in four years I mean they were just all kinds of screwed up and there's no way to build any sort of consistency with that or or any kind of a um, culture that way so you know the way that we were doing it was we we flushed all that out. We we brought in a completely new roster where and and basically the only guys I believe that the only guys that remain from that roster that came over in 2015. I'm almost positive that the only ones that are still on the roster right now are Batonio, Joel Batonio, the left guard, probably should be left tackle right now, Christian Kirksey, the uh, linebacker, and. The uh, long snapper, Charlie Hewlett. Those are the only players remaining from when Brown did the cleanse. So everybody else comes in. They're all all fresh and new. So at that point, um, now we've got... You know, we're th- we're three years into this, but two years into it, Brown gets cut off. And without getting into the whole, you know, politics of how all that went down, he's out. John Dorsey comes in. And as I say, I think that the model that we had that we were we were embarking upon was one where we would continue to be constantly – we would probably use a high pick if we had one, but then we would probably also trade one of the high picks that we had to continue getting further first-round picks while also using first-round picks in every draft, you know, moving forward in perpetuity uh, until such time we got to a point. And then, you know, of course, you're going to lose players because you get enough that are – eventually you land that quarterback, and now we landed – Miles Garrett, you land these guys, you have to pay them big contracts, you lose those guys, but then you replenish them with first-round talent. That was the trajectory, and that was the long-term vision that I saw within the Sashi model. Okay, he's gone. Now you bring in John Dorsey, who walks through the door with the most asset, the, the, the highest... Um, you know, uh, stash of assets 
when it comes to draft picks and cap space that any team going into any offseason has ever had. Nobody has ever had more than what John Dorsey started with, you know, in that offseason, this uh, this last offseason in 2018. And included in that is the first pick and the fourth pick overall and uh, a lot of cap space and a lot of flexibility to move some players because there was, you know, some quality players that were on this team that he moved. And so he took advantage of all of that. There was no, there was no waiting and and being very kind of um, judicious with the the cap in, in a you know a, a very very you know tight knit fashion and buttoned up way as as Brown had done you know over the first two years or with draft picks for that matter. Uh, in both instances, he spent, he traded, and then when it came to the draft, he picked the players. Now. Uh, I think that he's done an exemplary job of picking the players. And maybe this was all part of the John DePodesta strategy all along, because we don't really know what John DePodesta's strategy is, because we never hear from the guy. And I kind of like that. He's kind of a mystery figure in all of this. But certainly, he's got a prominent role. He'd have to. He's been there for three years. He's got to be doing something if he's the chief strategy officer. In this case, the strategy was build up a war chest of of, uh, assets and then bring in a guy that knows how to execute them. And that's what happened. Uh, I think that uh, John Dorsey, who I affectionately refer to as Meathead from time to time, uh, I think I don't I, I don't agree with all of the moves that he's made, but I definitely think that he's done a good job of picking the players. And not only that, he brought in Baker Mayfield, who was, in my mind, the high, I mean, for me anyway. And I'm not no, I'm no pro scout, but I have scouted quarterbacks for the last several years. I've had an opinion on guys coming out, and to my mind, and you know, to my eye, and after and look, I I had to be honest about it. I went through all of the guys that were available last year and the last several years. I watched a lot of. T- on a lot of quarterbacks and all of the ones that I've talked about so far I've I've watched lots and lots and lots and lots on all of them and there was never one that I was more excited about or wanted us to draft more than Baker Mayfield and it really wasn't especially close I was in love with this kid you know way over a year ago from now Uh, we're talking probably back in you know October of uh, 2017 and so when when Dorsey drafted Baker, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm good, especially after taking Mahomey the year. You got, I mean, because I'm here to tell you people, and I'm not the only one. I, I have not been surprised at all by how impressive he has been. I expected him to be that good, and I expect Baker to be at least that good and actually better. At some, and people are, oh, 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 Mahomey's playing uh, you know, MVP. Yeah, that's what I expect out of Baker, especially now that this saga is over with. Um, but as I say, I'm not – totally you know down with everything that old meathead has done but this this decision this last week to uh, and i don't believe that it was totally done by dorsey i think that he he has input with jimmy haslam so that's good you know i think that ultimately at the end of the day it's uh, it's going to be haslam's decision on all of this stuff because that's the way that he runs his organization and the way he's going to continue running his organization i think he said as much the other day in the press conference so at that point we are um, we're, we're now in a new frontier where Hugh Jackson is gone, Todd Haley is gone, that animosity, that dissension among the ranks is gone, and what what remains is Greg Williams and his fiery style continuing to run the defense, and Freddie Kitchens, who to this point had done a number of things and is now taking on a new role, um, is going to be, for all intents and purposes, running the offense. I'm very excited about what a, a pared-down involvement, if, if it's what ends up eventuating, kind of a letting 
seeing Baker Mayfield do more things is is going to result in. And that's a good point for me to uh, step aside one more time uh, to um, to think about that for a moment because we're gonna when when we return, I'm gonna now talk about where I see us going and what the future holds both for this season and beyond. Uh, my name is Easy Weave. This is Easy Does It on Dogs by Nature. We'll be right back. This Believe Land is our land with Josh Finney and John Colosimo. When literally we can't figure out a way to use the guys that are on the squad, it's just, it's maddening every week. And I think that at the end of the day, it's part of the reason that I think that Haley signed his death warrant. It was a question of stubbornness and how they choose to operate, an unwillingness to change, regardless of whose scheme and idea that is. I think that Dorsey probably looked at it and said, you know, if I can't pull out which one of you is at fault for this, then you can both go. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, uh, after a little bit of time, to reflect on that because I was very surprised. It actually was a nice departure from what we've seen, geez, countless freaking times. How many times have we seen these power struggles play out? It was nice if if this is what they were trying to do is that nobody wins. You're both gone and nobody wins the power struggle and different is good. If you're going to look at it from that angle, I think this was a departure from what we've seen. Listen to This Believe Land is Our Land only on Dogs by Nature. Appreciate you being there as we continue the discussion about where everything um, is moving for us. And to me, it begins and ends with number six uh, in the program, number one in your heart, Baker Mayfield, our starting quarterback now and forever. Drafted number one overall this year. I was uh, very excited when that happened in the uh, the and I'll leave it in the former DBN Network days, the open where uh, I was just excited beyond beyond belief that we actually made the right call because to me it wasn't it wasn't a close call. I had him head and shoulders above everybody else in a quarterback class that I was as excited about or more I should say way more excited about than any that I've ever looked at. I very much liked Sam Darnold. I liked. Uh, Josh Rosen uh, even more. I liked Lamar Jackson more than both of those guys. And I would have been okay with Josh Allen. I think that um, Allen is... I think he gets a, um, a bad rap in many ways. I, I like him more than, than you do probably. <laughs> but but I, I also very much wanted Baker uh, and, and would have considered it to be a consolation prize to have come up with anybody but him. And I think that when he first came into the game earlier this year, he showed exactly why that is. And, you know, if you remember... The the best that he has looked. Think about this: the best that Baker has looked for the most part this year has been the furthest removed from the reps that he has received from the starting offense. Because he came into that game against the Jets with no reps, and he looked great. He looked crisp. He was on target. He just knew. I don't want to say instinctively because you know he had learned it was learned behavior, but he just knew he had a connection automatically with the receivers. He knew how to get the line set. The team just looked better when he got in the game, and then things started to really um, get worse. You know, it's, it's it's really bizarre. He came in looking great, and then it kind of seemed, particularly after or during maybe the uh, the, the Los Angeles Chargers game when he hurts the foot. He really had seemed to play constrained, and you, you'd think, okay, that's just a you know bonehead rookie day, and these days are going to happen, you know, rookie going to rookie, all that. 
Uh, but then you see even after that that it still seems, and it looks like it's almost artificially constrained. This has been the thing over the last several weeks that I have been noticing. I, again, I noticed it a little bit during the uh, Charger game, but then during the the uh, Buccaneer game. Of course, I lived down here in Tampa, so this was the uh, I was at that game when uh, when uh, Mayfield is at the line. I was noticing he was just never audibling. He was never, you know, calling out anything, and I'm not the only one that's noticed this. There's, uh, there's others out in the the Twitterverse and elsewhere that have picked up on this. And I know it's, like, I know that he can do it. It's not like I, I know that he can read defenses. I know that he can, he can make adjustments. So why isn't he? And the only thing that I can, that, you know, that makes any sense at all is that for, for whatever reason, and I think that the reason is, um, you know, uh, just be you know, fear. Uh, he was instructed to basically whatever the play is, that's what the play is. You don't adjust anything. You just run the play. Okay, so that leads to us being eminently predictable and not and non-responsive to anything that the, the defense is doing to us and against us. So we end up doing nothing offensively, and I think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, we, you know, a little bit of a break from that in the second half against Tampa Bay, and then what happened? And I think that uh, the reason for it is, you know, you go back to those first, you know, two games, the first one against the Jets and the second one against the uh, the Raiders, the start, his first start against Oakland. You know, he had, he had some turnovers in those games, had, you know, dropped um, snap, had a fumble, you know, a couple of fumbles, you know, on, on some strips, had the uh, the pick at the end of the game. And my way of looking at it is, all right, look, when, when you when you are a rookie coming into the league with no reps until, you know, you're thrown into the action and now you're, you're live with the first team, uh, but you are doing advanced level stuff like he was doing, you know, I'm good with, with uh, there being some mistakes sprinkled in there. You know, if you remember, he put up, what, 66 points in his first six quarters? Uh, I'm willing to put up with some turnovers and some, some growing pains when he got that going on. I had no problem with that, but uh, I wasn't consulted on this, and so he ends up uh, throwing, or he ends up being, I think, I think anyway, I think that the reason then, or that was the reason at that point that you had Haley and Hugh or, or one of the two of them with the other one disagreeing, or however this all went down, with them basically handcuffing him, the functional result is him being handcuffed and not able to set protections and not being able to execute the offense in the way that you know that he's capable of doing, and that was you know for all intents and purposes kind of relegating the offense to a, a, a crippled status. And uh, my hope is that now with with that element being gone, with Hugh and Haley being out of the equation, that Freddie Kitchens is going to kind of take the the handcuffs off and let Mayfield play because this this guy is our future. You know, there's the reason that I was so. I mean, in the first place, if you watch the tape, and how you know, I'm I, and I'm not one that like I say, I'm not a professional scout, but I, I watch tape, and I'm convinced that the the way that you scout. You know, quarterbacks especially is that you got to watch the tape. There, are, I think there are some things at the other position groups that you can look at metrics, and you can see how you can get a pretty good idea for a, a, a level of probability that a player is going to do well by looking at how he performs in certain circumstances. And as I say, there's there's metrics out there that you can go by. But with quarterback, 
I don't think that there's any substitute for just you got to watch the tape. You just got to see how he does the things that quarterbacks at the NFL level need to do: make progressions, pocket presence, being able to read defenses, being able to um, you know recognize blitzes, being able to be accurate, being able to do all of those. And Baker Mayfield, if you put on the tape, you know when I started all of this, first the first film that I watched was Lamar Jackson. And I got to be honest, after watching a lot of tape on that dude, I'm thinking this guy's going to be the number one pick in the draft. I don't know how he's not. With he looks like Michael Vick, but he's but he's right-handed, so he doesn't have that handicap, you know, if you will, because left-handed guys typically don't work out. Although that wasn't really an issue in Vick's case, but still, you know, a guy with his uh, level of athleticism and he's plenty, you know, accurate when he has a chance to throw from the pocket. If you actually watched, you know, a lot of his film. Not perfect, but I was really wowed by what I saw from him. And then this, uh, you know, DBN guy, he was like, "Hey, man, before you get, before you get too far, because he knows me, he's like, before you go run off all half cocked with this, uh, you need to check out this guy Mayfield." So I did. I checked out. You know, he was the next guy that I looked at. First tape, first uh, film I put on is the Auburn game. Auburn game, uh, which is the Sugar Bowl, and. I'm in there for 30 seconds before I see my first wow moment. And, you know, a wow throw can be like, wow, look at the arm strength on that guy, which is what you get a lot from Josh Allen tape. You watch Josh Allen and, you, whoa, there's a lot of where it's like you can't believe that a, a person can throw a football that hard. But, you know, arm strength, while you got to have, you know, enough of it, it is not going to be the key indicator of whether or not you're going to be successful in the NFL. What is goes on between the ears is far, far more important, more valuable and more uh, indicative of of how that's going to turn out. So with Mayfield, it wasn't just that he made – he show, I mean, look, Mayfield's got plenty of arm. I think at this point, if you've seen him throw, you can see he's got plenty of arm. There's no problem with the velocity at all. Uh, and at the same time, he's also got very, 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 very good accuracy. That was the thing that it wasn't just that he had the arm, it was that he had the placement, but it it wasn't even that as much as the way he was able to both read, react to, and manipulate the defense. He was doing things at the next level at the quarterback position that you just don't see college guys doing. Then you take a look in it, so then at that point, I'm curious. I want to find out more about this guy. Uh, You know, how how much, you know, and you have, you know, as I say, there's no metrics that, um, that that really are effective for quarterbacks. One that was still nonetheless used for a long time was the 26-27-60 rule. And if you're not you know familiar with that, it's you need to have a 26 on the Wonderlick, have had 27 starts in college, and have a 60% completion percentage. Well, I mean that's that was kind of from the that was the Bill Parcells rule. It was kind of from a different era, and while. It's kind of one of those things where it doesn't really say that you're going to be successful, but not being able to meet that threshold does kind of say it. It's it's really kind of more of a disqualifier than it is a qualifier, if you will. Um, and even still, a lot of people can think it's antiquated. Okay, but still, it, it's it's they are factors that are worth considering. Where was Mayfield at that? Well, he ended up getting a 25 on the Wonderlick. All right, so did Roethlisberger. Um, 26 is the break-even point. And as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's you know, if you're basically in the 20 range, I'm good. Uh, because it's just a weird test. If you've never taken it, you should. You should. It's it's. It, you may have a better appreciation for anybody that does the scores high on it. It's like Ryan Fitzpatrick out of 48, that's nuts. That's banana sandwich. So when it comes to that, you know, you take it as a data point, but how much weight you put on it. All right, the next thing is number of starts. Mayfield had, and, and the, the metric, the, what you want is 27. That's basically three seasons. 
uh, or two full seasons and part of a third, however you look at it, or two full seasons with a lot of uh, post-season, post-season games. Well, in Mayfield's case, he had 48 starts. That's insane. That's a lot of experience. And then you look at what – and then the, the completion percentage, I think he was you know up near – I think for his career he was like 67 68%. And then you look at what he actually accomplished. Uh, and, and look, uh, college records don't really mean a whole lot. Even winning championships don't mean a whole lot. But the way things are done does say something. I mean, it does count for something at some point. And at the point where Mayfield in his junior year set the all-time college football efficiency record and then comes back the year later, his senior year, and breaks his own record, okay, that says something. But to me, when I dug in even further on this, the thing that I found out even more uh, was attitudinally, this is a guy that walked on to Texas Tech and ended up becoming the first true freshman to start an FBS opener ever. To walk on and start at quarterback uh, for an FBS opener as a true freshman. No one's ever done that before. And it spoke to a mental you know, toughness and, and obviously a, an ability that you have to have. You have to have the swagger. You have to have the drive. You have to be able to confidently walk on there, walk out there, and, and kind of grab that you know, and, and risk you know, everything if you don't make it. And he ends up doing that, getting the job at Texas Tech. Well, then he ends up getting replaced at Texas Tech by a guy named Patrick Mahomes. And so what he ends up doing is instead of, you know, kind of accepting that that uh, reality, he transfers to Oklahoma where he has to walk on yet again. And once again, now he had to sit out a year, but once again he walks on and wins the starting job, walks in there and tells the coach, I'm going to be your starting quarterback. And sure enough, he goes in there and he does it after having to sit out a year. Actually, I had to cause the NCAA to change their rules. So then he proceeds to start for Oklahoma for three years and is the most prolific quarterback in their history, ends up becoming possibly the greatest quarterback in all of collegiate history, but becomes the first player ever to be a walk-on and win the Heisman Trophy. Now, the thing about that particular thing is a guy that wins the Heisman Trophy, what it speaks to is that they are all guys that are going to be kind of at the high level of the high school football ranks. Generally speaking, a guy that wins the Heisman is a guy that plays for a long, you know, does a lot, achieves a lot, accomplishes a lot at the collegiate level, and that's because he got a lot of playing time and probably because he overperformed, and if he was overperforming and he got those opportunities, it's because he had a tremendous high school career. And it wasn't that Mayfield didn't have a, a tremendous high school career as much as just the way that it all unfolded for him. He was not the most highly scouted, highly recruited. So he ends up having to prove himself not once but twice. And that's just not something that other Heisman winners have ever had to do. So that level of mental toughness to me was the thing that really put it over the top. And then you see that with the way that he responded to certain things. Like the, you know, he goes in, he gets in trouble, gets tackled by the cop, and gets, you know, uh, cited for something. He got in trouble for something. I forget what the charge was. But, you know, he ends up having to, uh, you know, uh, learn from that experience, and, and it was what it was. He then goes and uh, has the thing where Kansas wouldn't shake his hand before the game because they're trying to get in his head. So then he goes out, 
um, puts uh, you know a ton of points on the board, and they then take a cheap shot at him. So then you see him on the sideline. He's jawing at him, grabs his crotch, and causes a big scene, causing people to you know wonder if he's if he's mature enough to be able to handle the NFL. To my mind, and meanwhile, everybody that's ever played with him absolutely loves him. And you learn more and more about the guy that he's also just kind of a weirdo in a lot of the things that he does. But he's also an incredibly charismatic weirdo in the things that he does. And you put all of this together and it paints the picture of a guy that, to me, with incredible talent to go along with it. you know, And accuracy is not one of these things that you can coach. If you're not accurate, you're probably never going to be accurate. And I've never seen a college quarterback that's as accurate as Baker Mayfield. So with plenty of arm strength, plenty of talent, and you know, plenty of, of you know, I, I think that the 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 fact that he's not a big tall quarterback, he's listed at six one. He's actually I think six and five eighths, six foot and five eighths of an inch. He's not quite six one, but he's enough six one to be listed that way, which is you know uh, a little bit shorter than what the prototypical size is. So that was what a lot of knocks on him were. But he's also a stout guy. Um, he's twenty three years old, so he's one of the more developed rookies you're going to see coming into the league. But he's done more than anybody else has, and he has that attitude that if you are going to be the guy that's going to walk in and change the Cleveland Browns, you're going to have to have that attitude. And I think that a lot of the, so he was the, that's why, to my mind, he was the perfect guy to come in here and do this. And you know, it may end up turning out that the entire Hugh Jackson experience. Uh, you know, and Hugh Jackson, you know, like I mentioned on the, game, the the cast last week, you know, it may have been that Baker wasn't his guy. He wasn't even told that Baker was going to be the draft pick until, you know, the night before, as it's reported. So, you know, at that point, if Hugh Jackson uh, was, was sour on Mayfield or wasn't totally sold on him or whatever, well, then it may explain why he didn't, you know, even, uh, you know, give him a, a, a second look, even though he probably was obviously better than Tyrod even in the beginning of training camp. Because he was clearly better the moment he came on the field, and it looked like that in preseason, quite uh, honestly, as well. So, with with that, and then you have this stifling of his development that I think we've witnessed over the last several weeks. And look, if he goes out there and looks like garbage on Sunday, then you know I'll, I'll I will have to come back here and you know admit that I'm wrong about a lot of my assumptions and assertions here. But at the same time, if he goes out there and looks like a stud, then I think that. It, it, it's going to validate a lot of what my assumptions are here about the reason why he had been ineffectual the last couple of games and why I think he's going to improve ultimately. And the, the, the closer we get to a point where he is basically directly controlling most of what's going on with the offense is the time we're going to be winning games because we're going to be scoring a lot of points because the kid is special. And I'm so excited about the future when I look at him on offense and then take a look at number 95 on defense. And he's not the only piece. We've got a lot of good, uh, talented defensive players. Many of them were the be- the benefit of you know players that Sashi Brown brought in, and also draft picks that he acquired to bring them in. But John Dorsey is also responsible for kind of you know continuing, you know, finishing the loop on a lot of it. And the the roster overall, I think, is much better than than what a lot of people uh, realize. You know where we are. I think that with Mayfield being able to control more of the offense, I think that we're going to see a pretty drastic improvement in the offensive line this week. We'll see. I could be wrong about that, but you know we're going to find out uh, because the line looked a lot better earlier this year than it's looked right. You know the last couple of weeks, and there's a reason for all of this. I think, and I think that it's a lot more complicated than just stupid rookie going to stupid rookie. I think that uh, it has to do with um, kind of the coaching shackles that have now been removed, and um, we're going to see a much better project, a pr- uh, uh, product on the field. And when that occurs, 
you know, this is the great part of all of this, is – you know, the, the, the defense, I, I don't expect us to go out there and win a whole bunch of games this year. I don't really expect for Greg Williams to be giving serious consideration. Uh, I don't expect us to, you know, compete necessarily with Kansas City this week from, you know, from a, you know, end of the game box score standpoint. But I think the team's going to look better. I think they're going to come out more fired up. And I think the offense is going to put up some points. And uh, we'll, we'll ultimately end up losing this game. And we're going to probably end up still losing most of the games that we play for the remainder of this year. But it's fine. Baker getting out there, getting live reps in, getting better and better each week. We're going to win a couple of games uh, as this all eventuates. And then at the end of the year, I'll tell you what, though. if Let's say we go out there and the offense looks much better. The defense, for the most part, still is getting shredded because so much of our problem this year has been a lack of uh, unpredictability, as in a total uh, predictability in everything that we do, uh, and that being you know a, a problem. Uh, with uh with 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 Greg Williams if it continues like that on defense even if he's the head coach but the offense comes out and looks way better and we have kind of a renaissance where the offense is scoring you know lots of points every game and Baker looks really good <clears throat> I'm here to say right now I would be you know, very much for the possibility of looking at Freddie Kitchens moving forward as possibly because you don't get to keep the coordinators it just doesn't typically happen that way. You either promote them from within or you lose them when the new guy comes in because the new guy's going to want his guys. I don't I can't think of and maybe you can. Uh, you know, and you can always tell me, you know, there's there's ways to get in touch with me. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, or also on um you know uh, the articles that will accompany. So we're still going to write articles for these uh, these shows that we're now on the dogs by nature platform. Um I I think that uh what <clears throat> what uh, happens whenever you get a new coaching staff in is they're they're just going to want their own guys, and with with when, and, and it just, just doesn't necessarily matter how good or bad. You know, well, it matters how bad they did certainly, but it doesn't matter how good the guys that was there before d- do. So that's why I say if Kitchens goes out and this offense really looks like it's humming, then I'm you know I just kind of I, I kind of like the guy and I like his demeanor. Um, it may be something to look at, but we have there's certainly a lot of um, of candidates that are out there, a lot of people that a lot of people like, uh, and I'll be happy to uh, go down this uh, you know this this path. Whoever it is, I just I, I just want them more than anything else to get out of Baker's way because I think that we got this if we just let him develop. He's going to if we get a good coach that's innovative that can draw up some offensive game plans that can actually get some guys open. Then my friends, we are on the cusp of some really really good times. And maybe uh, Jimmy Haslam, if he does end up you know hiring somebody, that this time he gets the right guy, and uh, we'll see. But uh, that's um, kind of where uh, where I'm at with all of this. I'm uh, looking forward to the game this weekend, even though I don't think that uh, we're going to uh, even get close. I think that ultimately it'll end up being a uh, one where we'll 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 put up a lot of po- we'll, we'll put up we will put up some points. We'll put up some scores, but uh, the chefs will just be too much for us to handle. It'll end up being something like 45 to 31, something like that. And uh, we will fall to two, six, and one, but it'll be okay. It'll be a lot more fun than what it's been the last couple of weeks. And I look forward to talking with you now into the future as part of Dogs by Nature. Again, um, it has been a pleasure being a part of the DBN Network, but the DBN Network has now become part of and is now, you know, I guess, uh, 
we, we are all one or one deal now. We are all part of dogs by nature. And so wherever you listen to uh, podcasts, listen to this one there on uh, dogs by nature. Listen to Easy Does It. I am Easy Weave here. And I'll look forward to talking to you again Sunday night after the Browns-Chefs matchup. And until then, I hope that uh, you have a wonderful weekend, a great Friday. Uh, if, if it is still Friday, whatever point, at whatever point you're listening, I hope that you are well. Until then, good luck. God bless. See ya. Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play. Brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories. Like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0. Or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.